This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and consider joining our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Today, my guest is Serena Liveday, an educator and education leader at Dreamhouse Academy, Eva Beach, on the west side of the island of Oahu in Hawaii. Dreamhouse was founded by a team of individuals led by Alex Teese, a former guest on this show, and a brilliantly innovative leader who worked relentlessly to get Dreamhouse's charter application passed. Alex recently handed over the reins at Dreamhouse to Ryan Mondado, whose name will come up at the end of this conversation. Alex Teese knows Serena Liveday well, of course, so he wrote these words specifically for this episode. Quote, Serena Liveday is an educator, mother, and leader in West Oahu. Her journey as an educator in Hawaii began through Teach for America, and she has truly come to life through her entrepreneurial journey as a coach at Dreamhouse. During the depths of COVID, as a first-year science teacher with Dreamhouse, Serena envisioned a computer science program that would provide middle schoolers with baseline coding, programming, and critical thinking skills grounded in indigenous methods and with a strong commitment to our local island community. This served as a harbinger and a catalyst for what was to come. Serena won the 2023 Charter School Teacher of the Year, coached student-led teams who won the Congressional App Challenge for Representative Ed Case's district twice, brought in tens of thousands in grants and computer equipment to our students, is a highly respected colleague and beloved teacher at Dreamhouse, and she will serve as founding 10th grade leader this coming school year, a leadership role that she is naturally equipped for as she helps guide the future of our high school. On a personal note, I offer my highest praise and appreciation for the person, educator, and leader that Serena is and will become. She is someone that I have truly enjoyed working alongside to launch and grow this charter school. And I know that our school, our families, our children, staff, and future is in good hands with someone of her ability, character, and compass. What a wonderful person to have on your podcast, end quote. Serena has a bachelor's in economics from USC and a master's of science and education from the Johns Hopkins University. Michael Sarmiento, Purple Maya's education director, said the following about Serena, and I quote, she has reminded me that teaching is about connection, connection to your students, connection to your content, connection to your culture, connection to your colleagues, connection to your community, and most importantly, connection to a purpose that is bigger than yourself. 
Serena gathers all of these connections and creates a magical learning space where her students are brave enough to do challenging things because they know they are valued and loved, end quote. Author John A. Powell once wrote, quote, belonging means more than just being seen. Belonging entails having a meaningful voice and the opportunity to participate in the design of social and cultural structures. Belonging means having the right to contribute to and make demands on society and political institutions." End quote. I think Powell's words beautifully capture Serena's head, heart, spirit, and approach to teaching. And now, here is my conversation with Serena Liveday. Serena, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Serena, I've really been looking forward to this, and thank you for being on the show. You listed a series of books that have been influential in your life, including Educated by Tara Westover and Know My Name by Chanel Miller. And you also listed a podcast, which I absolutely love, titled This American Life. But what really caught my eye is a film, a documentary, you cited titled Coded Bias, which is on Netflix. So I watched this stunning documentary a few nights ago and came away with my head, you know, in a swirl of thoughts. So what is this story of you growing up in the Bay Area as a child of a low-income family who attended a well-resourced public school in a wealthy but small community. How are you still processing the identity questions raised by your experiences and school and also living in that community? And what is the connection between your growing up story and this film, Coded Bias, which you cited as influential? So as you mentioned, I grew up in the Bay Area, low income against the backdrop of a really well-resourced and wealthy public school. And I think that grappling and reflecting on this experience, I've really had to learn to avoid black and white thinking and to be able to accept both realities, that they're not mutually exclusive, that that was just my experience. I was part of a low-income family. And I also had a lot of privileges that I benefited from, including the privileges of going to a really high-achieving, well-resourced school. And I think the way that this is related to coded bias, you know, I relate deeply with Joy. She is the computer scientist at MIT Media Lab, whom the documentary focuses on. Mm -hmm. She is an engineer. She works with technology yet the very technology she creates can't even identify her face. Mm. And so I think it's this really powerful contrast of her identity as an engineer, but also up against the backdrop of like a field that she is not yet represented in, if that makes sense. So it's just really like gray area and, and tension of, being able to hold both, like this amazing, she's an amazing engineer and also 
she is the exact example of someone who is not yet represented in the algorithms mm. that we consume and use every single day. Mm. This is a wild question to kick off the interview with, but mm. I think if I can draw that connection there of like, you know, identity is complex and oftentimes there are parts of your identity that don't, you know, seamlessly seem to fit, but that's okay because that's who you are, right? You can hold mm. both. Mm. And there is one quote that has really been guiding my thinking lately on identity and education and just the way I see the world. And it's by the poet Rumi. It's somewhere out there beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing. There's a field. I will meet you there. Mm. And I think aside from right and wrong, I think beyond the ideas of black and white, there's a field. I'll meet you there. And so I've been really challenging myself to be comfortable with the discomfort of gray in between. Mm. I think what really blew me away about coded bias, Serena, is that ostensibly it's about facial recognition technology or artificial intelligence technology and the ways that that technology mm. is flawed because it is built by mostly white men and it, it is very accurate in recognizing those types of identities, but it is very poor at identifying other types of identities. And then it spins off into like a thousand different topics, you know, related to identity and related to discrimination and terrorism and hoof boy, everything under the sun. And I just kept thinking while I was watching it, because I had already heard your origin story, you know, that in, in many ways, this, you tapped into this because you felt like and even as a woman, you felt like you were a player in coded bias. You were part of it. You're part of that story. And you're also a computer science teacher on top of that. Was I on track on that as I was thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this misconception, and they talk about it in coded bias, that technology is objective yeah. and fair. But technology is not objective and fair because technology and algorithms are created by humans and humans are flawed. And as you've mentioned, technology is created specifically by a very small group of homogenous mm. people. And so, I mean, that's the idea that I really want to get across to my students of like, your voice is important. Mm. You need to be a creator of technology. I need you represented in technology creation and algorithm creation. Mm. And yeah, that's really what led me to be a computer science teacher is my own experience with computer science, which you started to mention. Mm -hmm. I majored in computer science in college and quickly left because at the time I thought that I wasn't smart enough. You know, the, the college level computer science classes and math classes, engineering classes were extremely, extremely rigorous compared to the ones that I had taken in high school. And so at the time, I felt like, oh, I can't hang. Like I'm struggling for the first time in, in my academics. And so this maybe just isn't for me. Maybe I was wrong. Mm. Maybe I'm not supposed to be or something. Mm. But mm. now looking back with an educator lens, I realized that the education I received in college just wasn't an education that was made for me. And that if I was in a situation where I was learning in an environment where I felt safe and I was surrounded by people who you know, looked like me and I had mentors who looked like me or mm. mentors who just took the time to get to know me, that I am very confident I would have stuck it out and maybe be a computer scientist to this day. Mm. But you know, I'm thankful for that experience because I, I love being a computer science teacher and that whole experience is what led me to where I am now. So I can't, I can't complain, but mm. I will say that 
I can say that if my college experience was different, that my job would probably be different today. Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect segue, you know, to a follow-up question. About a year ago, Teach for America Hawaii and the nonprofit Hawaii Kids Can put on an event they called Spark and Inspire. And I was there for that. And you were one of the presenters and you began with a video you made where the first words you speak are, Dear College Serena, a lot has changed since the decision to leave your major. So I confess, Serena, I have now gotten choked up several times while repeatedly watching this four-minute film. So what is this film about? And it's kind of an extension of what you were just saying. And how did it make your case in this pitch session that was Spark and Inspire? Like, what were you pitching to the audience and where did you want the audience to go once they'd seen the film and heard from you that night? Well, first, thanks for watching the video and thanks for listening to my story. I think that letter to myself is really the message that I want all of my students to know. Mm -hmm. I want my students to know that they're all capable of being computer scientists. You know, I teach middle school computer science. We're not talking about rigorous. I don't I can't even reach currently a, a high level of rigor in terms of computer science, but my goal has always been access, right? And building students' confidence so that they leave my class knowing that if they wanted to, they could be a computer scientist. And I think that that's a message that I wish I had had in college mm. for someone to tell me, hey, this is hard, but you are capable and you deserve a seat at the table. And if you want to be a creator of technology, you can. And so that letter to myself is really a letter to my current students and guides the work that I do now. My goal is never to make all of my students into computer scientists. My goal is to make sure that they know they could if they wanted to be. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, you know, speaking of your current work that you're doing at Dreamhouse Academy, you shared something with me that to this moment... I still cannot wrap my head around. So Dreamhouse Academy is a hugely experiential-based public charter school in Hawaii on Oahu focused on the twin pillars of identity and leadership. And up to this point, it has been a middle school, but over the next few years, it will expand into a high school. And you and a team of faculty are currently building a new 10th grade level for Dreamhouse, which, and this is the head-spinning part for me, is going to be located on the University of Hawaii's West Oahu campus during this 2023-2024 school year. And I was like, what? <laughs> so that's wild and crazy. So our listeners want to know more about housing a public charter school's 10th grade on a college campus and how this process will, under your leadership, Serena, yield even more answers to the question, what could school be or what could be school? Yeah, it boggles my mind as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm kind of in a, in a fun phase right now of just dreaming and you know, thinking about the possibilities of having our kids there at UH West Oahu campus next year. But mm. I know that in the next few weeks, it's going to get really nitty gritty and we're going to have to figure out the details and logistics. But right now it's really fun because I just get to dream. I am so ecstatic at the thought of having high schoolers come to a college campus every day to learn. Yeah. I think that, you know, I heard in one of your previous episodes that you know, learning, I think one of the biggest flaws of traditional education is that 
we believe learning happens in silos, right? And I know that it doesn't. Math learning doesn't just happen in math class and science learning doesn't just happen in science class. That learning is fluid mm. and learning can happen anywhere. And so I'm so glad that instead of being confined to one dream house building, that we're on a college campus where we have access to so many resources for our students to explore and engage in learning in different ways. You know, they have already visited the community garden there on campus. Mm. There's a, a amazing digital media lab that's brand new, Creative X lab that our students also had the opportunity to visit already this summer. There's so many ways, different ways to engage in learning at a college campus mm. rather than a traditional school building. And so I think that's what I'm most excited about is when I think about what school could be, I think about learning happening in a variety of ways, endless ways of learning. And I think having school at a college campus is is one way to make that happen. Mm. How did that relationship come about, Serena? What Do you recall what the first steps were that ultimately yielded this partnership where West, uh, UH West Oahu was willing to house your 10th grade? Yeah. So our founder, Dr. Alex Teese, he is the founder of DreamHouse or one of the founders, and he forged a relationship with faculty at UH West Oahu, I think about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And we first pitched the idea of creating a public charter school focused on identity and leadership. He started the conversation a decade ago about what would it look like for our students to actually you know, be high school students on a college campus and to see themselves as college students every day, even though they're still in high school. Mm. And so he started this conversation and it's been a long conversation since then. Mm-hmm. And really have him to think because he is the one who, you know, kind of set us up and handed us off. And now I'm taking the torch and we get to do the fun part, right? We get to be the ones actually there at the campus and and doing school there. So yeah, it was really Alex in the relationship he had with the staff at UH West Oahu. And then I also want to mention that, you know, there are champion staff at UH West Oahu who really believe in the power of community learning, yeah. bridging divides and barriers between, you know, K through 12 education and higher education. So mm. I know that there's several partners there at UH West Oahu who really, really push to make this happen with the help of Alex Teese. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we're going to be looking forward to seeing how that plays out, both as you dive into the weeds, Serena, and all of the details that have to be ironed out as you begin that process, but also just the things that that together with your team and your 10th grade students, what you're aspiring to as you enter into this year-long sort of compact with this institution of higher ed. So that's just awesome.
so good segue to my next question, which is, and you know, I, I beg your patience here. This is going to take a second. I need to kind of explain this question. But you introduced me to an entirely new word I had never heard before, which is awesome. The word is agentic, spelled A-G-E-N-T-I-C. And this sent me down a rabbit hole, Serena, where I found a wonderful gettingsmart.com blog post that you and I eventually both read together. And I'm going to read the first paragraph of this post. So this will take a minute. Hang in there. So, quote, The word agentic is described as an individual's power to control his or her own goals, actions, and destiny. It stems from the word agency, which Webster's Dictionary defines as the capacity, condition, or state of acting or of exerting power. In the late 1980s, Stanford University psychologist Albert Bandura began developing a theory of social cognition that he associated with self-efficacy. He later examined more specifically the role of agency and motivation and coined the term agentic, in which people are viewed as self-organizing, proactive, self-reflecting, and self-regulated, which he calls agentic. So agentic learning is defined by self-directed actions aimed at personal growth and development based on self-chosen goals. Within this context, students initiate actions of their own volition that drive their learning, end quote. So Serena, our listeners grappling with this concept of agentic would love to hear a specific example of something you did with your students where the outcome was visible, meaning your students became more agentic. Like paint us a picture and more than one crazy awesome example would be great if you if you have that. Yeah, great question. I want to start by saying that this also led me down a rabbit hole. Mm. After reading this article with you, I clicked on some sub-articles regarding agency. And what struck me was that there's so many different definitions of agency and the word agentic. And I actually prefer this definition by Dr. Anindya Kundu. She's a sociologist of education, and she defines agency as a person's capacity to leverage resources to navigate obstacles and create positive change in their life. Mm, I think this is closer to my also definition of agency in that I believe agency is an individual's ability to leverage resources in order to make their dreams come true. And one idea that I wanted to bring up was just how crazy it is that there's so many different definitions of agency. And what does that say about us as humans and our relationship with agency, right? Mm-hmm. Cause we're not really sure it is. There's so many people who say it's this. And then there's so many people who say it's that. So I just find that very interesting that agency feels like a very new concept to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I really prefer that second definition. And in terms of how that shows up in my classroom, you know, I want all of the learning that my students do to feel meaningful to feel exciting, for them to feel connected to what they're learning and producing, that nothing is being done out of obligation, but students are truly having fun and playing. And it doesn't feel hard. It feels easy, right? Mm. And one of the ways that I create that kind of environment in my classroom is I give my students a lot of opportunity to create. And computer science is a great class for creation because mm. I think that coding coding is actually fairly easy to pick up. And there's a lot of instant kind of gratification or small wins that students get. You just put a few blocks of code together and then boom, you have like 
a cat and then boom, the cat is walking. So students love coding. And what I do frequently is give them opportunities to, I'll give them like a genre, for example, like a children's game. But then Mm. from then, my students have the opportunity to create whatever game they want. And they have an opportunity to express themselves through that game. So their interests, like students who really like sports or football will create a kid's game based off of football. Students who, you know, are into fashion will create a kid's dress up game. And so I really give them an opportunity to express themselves and the things that matter to them within their code and within the things that they create. Mm. So a very specific example of that is we do a unit in Minecraft. I think Minecraft, I don't know if you have any familiarity with Minecraft, but I I think it's a brilliant, brilliant learning platform. It's amazing. I mean, the capability for world building and storing, I think is just incredible and so easy to access. And what I like about it too, is that all students really enjoy Minecraft. Like I think one of the big reasons why there's such a big gender divide in computer science or gender gap I should say, in computer science is that, you know, computer science is highly related to computer games, gaming, Mm. robots, and overall things that, generally speaking, boys feel more drawn to. And so, you know, girls are kind of left thinking or non-binary kids are left thinking like, well, you know, what does computer science mean to me then? I'm not interested in robotics or gaming. And so that's where Minecraft comes in, you know, because everybody has a story to tell and everybody can create worlds, right? Mm. And so we have a unit in Minecraft where students get to create literally anything that they want using the coding concepts that we've been learning in class. And so students create amazing, amazing things like houses and villages. And some students who really like video games will create games within Minecraft, but all using algorithms. Mm. And so it's amazing to see what students will come up with when you just say, Here's Minecraft. Here's some coding concepts. Okay, like run, go free, mm. create whatever. And I think that's just one way in which my students in my class demonstrate their agency. That's awesome, Serena. I was invited at one point by an Apple Distinguished Educator here in Hawaii, where I'm based, who was teaching at Punahou School, which is a pretty large independent school here in Honolulu. And in his computer science class, he wanted me to see how he was using Minecraft with his students. I think he had 15 students. And basically, the project was to each student had their own island in Minecraft, which I was just coming to understand. And on each island, each student had to build the school of their dreams. And the only condition was that they had to visit everybody else's school before they finished theirs. And as he walked me through this like hour and a half demo of this, my mind was blown. I just thought how playful that was and how how much he was building designers' mindsets and, you know, empathy and connection and collaboration. And so, yeah, wow, that really gets me fired up. And I wish, Serena, that I was back in school because I had nothing like that. And computer science was just word processing for me back in the day. So, so that's, that's a perfect segue to this last question before we go to our first break. And I'm, again, going to beg your indulgence and our listeners' indulgence, because I'm going to read out loud your entire computer science course description. And then I want to focus on two parts of it briefly. So here we go. Quote, my syllabus course description, you 
are a computer scientist. My hope is that this class will help you see and believe this, the understanding of technology and how to use it to benefit our lives and the lives of communities. This is an understanding that flows in your blood, and you will have ample opportunity to practice throughout this course. We will ground ourselves in the new and study the ways that your ancestors utilized and created technology long before us. We will also explore the new and create modern technology making sure that it is always a true representation of your culture, your community, and your brilliance. When you design websites, apps, games, AI, robots, you're designing our future and you are designing our world. What kind of world do you want to design? Knowledge of computer science is powerful, and this knowledge lives inside of you. It is time to create, end quote. So my two-part question is, what do you mean when you talk about ways, quote, your ancestors utilized and created technology? And this really sounds like a door opening to inclusion and diversity in a very authentic way. And then the second question has to do with your opening sentence, Serena, which again is, you are a computer scientist. My hope is that this class will help you see and believe this. So how does the learning journey change when we start with sentences like this, where we tell the kids, you are already the computer scientist. You are already the historian. You are already a biologist or an artist, and this class is going to help bring it out of you. The very first day of school, I get my students coding right away so that they can see firsthand and experience firsthand that they are able to code. I think that there is a misconception in education in general that when students enter the classroom, that knowledge is like bestowed upon them and that they're sponges that need to soak up all of this information and knowledge. And I think that really creates a barrier for a lot of kids to feel confident in their learning and to feel engaged in school. And so I take a different approach where I want my students to recognize that all of the skills that are required of computer scientists, all of the intelligence and creativity and brilliance is already within them. And we use examples from, I serve, you know, mainly Native Hawaiian students. And so one of the things that we do is we explore hale building. And so in collaboration with Purple Maya, a phenomenal indigenous computer science technology organization, I'm co-developing a hale building unit with them. But instead of a real life physical hale, we're recreating hale with algorithms in Minecraft and hale are Hawaiian houses, and there's many different types of hale. And we focus on hale papa'a, which is a shed-style hale. Mm. And so get to learn very surface level about, you know, knots and lashing and how their ancestors created hale. And then they get to then recreate that same hale in Minecraft using, you know, what are called agents, little robots in Minecraft, mm -hmm. and algorithms learn to write. And so this is a perfect example. You know, I'm really proud of this unit and I hope one day to see it in all computer science classes in Hawaii. A perfect example of students using ancestral knowledge and reflecting that back in a modern context like Minecraft. 
Mm -hmm. That's awesome. You know, what really spoke to me in that first line of your course description, Serena, is, you know, my own 17 years in the classroom teaching history, and that what I really wanted over all of those years was to train my students to be historians. I did not want to fill them up with a bunch of stuff that they would not remember. I wanted them to know how to be something, to be a historian. And I think when you lead with a question like that, whew, boy, you really... It's really inclusive. It's like, you know, I, you know, Michelangelo is, as, a, as an artist, as a sculptor, was famous for, you know, the idea that he would get a block of marble and then he would release something from, like the David, from it with his chisel and hammer. And I think that's really what you're doing is you're releasing these kids as sort of a block of human being and you're releasing them to be almost anything that they want to be, whether it's computer scientist or historian or biologist or whatever, whatever it happens to be, right? Yeah. It's so crazy that in our current world, that's just so infused with technology. I mean, every almost every single one of my students has a cell phone. Yeah. And I didn't have a cell phone until high school, late high school. It's crazy to me that not all students have even just a basic understanding of how technology is created and yeah. feel confident to do so themselves. I mean, that's not their fault, obviously. That's that's an access issue, right? And yeah. you know, all it takes is is just a little bit of exposure. And that was really the goal of me starting this program at DreamHouse was like, hey, we can talk about test scores and achievement and, you know, starting an AP class, which we're going to do next year, but all of those things later. But right now, like the first step is just access and exposure. Like mm. our students will never know that they're computer scientists un until someone takes the time to tell them, right? You yeah. are a computer scientist. Yeah. And then from then on, it's, it is their choice whether or not they want to pursue that route. But someone needs to tell them that they are and they can be. So yeah, that's really that's really the goal of my course. And if just one student in my you know computer science class or after taking my computer science class says like, hey, after this class, I actually think I want to be an engineer. I want to become a computer scientist. I've done my job. And so far, I've had several students come up to me and say, hey, this is something that I want to pursue. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So, hey, everyone, we will be right back with more questions for Serena Lividay. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. 
As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be Educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Serena Livaday, an epic educator at Dreamhouse Academy in the township of Eva Beach in Hawaii. So Serena, if pressed, I would say that one of the main arguments happening in education right now has to do with the development of career pathways and pipelines. So for example, I hear folks applauding the concept of a healthcare pathway or an engineering pathway in high school that leads directly to, say, nursing school or a job in engineering. But I also hear folks raising concerns that schools are becoming job training centers and not the developers of a learned citizenry. So I just wonder what your thoughts are about this 30,000-foot question that's kind of big, I understand. No, that's a great question. I totally understand the intent behind college and career pathways or career pathways specifically, but I do feel a tension there because I don't know about you, but when I was in high school and even college, I really had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up, Mm -hmm. right? Like I didn't know what career I wanted to commit to. And that's reflected in my college journey. I changed majors like three times before I landed in economics and then became a teacher. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that it would be more helpful to provide students with skills-based opportunities and give students experiences or exposure to how those skills are applied in various fields, but maybe not put them on a specific career track that early, Mm. as early as high school, because I feel like it pressures them to choose a career. But, you know, they're kids. They're still trying to figure out who they are and what they like and what they don't like and what they're good at. And, you know, so at a school like Dreamhouse that focuses on identity, we really try to give our students the space to figure those things out first Hmm. and then not jump to like, okay, choose a career. Do you want to go into the medical profession or technology? And so one thing that we're trying out in 10th grade this upcoming school year is we're partnering with an organization called Pilina Pathways Mm -hmm. to provide some pathway courses, but they're not career-based. I think they are grounded in real-world professional skills, things like problem-solving and collaboration. And then also there's a specific kind of track that the students can can choose to engage. So for example, we're going to offer a creativity track, an art and creativity track, where if students really want to test out their creativity and be artists by making movies... That is one track to explore. And another track is an INA track where students who are really connected to the land and want to grow that connection can be in the ag tech class and explore ag tech and and interact with industry professionals in ag tech and explore what that is. Mm. But we're not saying like, hey, if you choose the ag tech track, you have to become 
I'm an agriculturalist, right? Or mm-hmm. if you choose the cinema track, you have to become a movie maker. We're just saying, hey, you're going to learn these real world skills regardless of what track you choose. But you will also get to see how these real world skills are used in specific professions. And so, yeah, I think I want to lean away from making high school students choose their career that early on, but also give them opportunities to practice real world skills in various professions for sure. Mm. So two thoughts in response to what you just said. So one is that I wonder, you know, I was in high school 50 years ago. Yikes, I'm about to turn 65. (laughs) Here we go. And back then when I was at Punahou School here in Honolulu, I actually think I might have benefited from some sort of career pathway thing then. But I realized many years later, Serena, that I I was in a sort of pathways program. It just wasn't happening at school. It happened after I left school in the afternoon and went home. So when I went home, if I was building rock walls with my father or if I was out sailing on on Kaneohe Bay, whatever those things were, in some ways, those were the kinds of pathways that you just described, which are not necessarily career pathways. They're just like life pathways. Here's exposure to life. Here's exposure to life, right? I think that that's, I just love that idea. And then the second thought is to circle back to, wow, what an amazing thing that your kids in in this new 10th grade, with this new kind of take on it, with this Pilina program, which in Hawaiian means relationships, that they're going to get to do this on a college campus. How interesting. Oh my God, that's amazing. You know, is that kind of like what's going through your mind right now? Oh, I'm absolutely stoked. Like I I think that the Polina Pathways is just kind of one part of that whole idea of giving them exposure to careers, but they're going to be able to explore those pathways more deeply mm-hmm. by interacting with the faculty at UH West Oahu that they're going to be able to see every single day. Another idea that we're testing out this year is giving our students more opportunities to actually practice community leadership. So, you know, our our mission and vision is to raise homegrown leaders of Hawaii. And one reflection that I had was we need to give our students more opportunities to practice that. And so students are actually taking a design thinking course with Pilina Pathways this year. Mm. And then they're going to opt in to partner with a community site on Fridays, and they're going to actually do school at that community site Mm. for five to six Fridays in the semester. And how that's related to the design thinking is then after building relationship with their community site and having experience and learning about the challenges that their community site is facing, they're actually going to apply their design thinking to their specific site. Mm. And so I, I think this is really an idea that's going to live out my my value for learning happening in in many places not just in one school yeah that's that's fabulous so perfect this this next question is also one of those 30,000 foot level questions you know for many years now there's been a groundswell movement across the country and perhaps even the world that is calling out the college board's advanced placement program so heck Serena, I have been vocal about my frustrations with AP and the way its courses 
are sometimes an inch deep and a mile wide. And I've also been vocal as a former APUS teacher about the anxiety and stress these courses lead to. You, on the other hand, are working hard to get your 10th graders next year to take and pass the AP computer science course on its exam. So how do you balance the AP's content demands with your passion for authentic, real-world challenges and learning? And what is your take on the whole AP college board debate. I heard, you know, from many AP teachers, including some of the AP teachers that you've interviewed, that this is always a constant struggle trying to figure out how to live out your values in your teaching and also get your kids to pass this like really rigorous standardized test. So I definitely feel that and am anticipating struggling through that this year. You know, this is going to be my first time teaching an AP class. I was just AP certified a few weeks ago. Hmm. So I think if anything, I'm just anticipating that tension and I'm kind of like, okay, I'm going to figure it out as I go. But one thing I do know is that, you know, I want to plan ahead as much as possible. So look at, look at what needs to be covered, but then also take my values for indigenous computer science learning and agency and think ahead of time during the summer before the school year starts, how to incorporate those things throughout the units. And so hopefully that'll make the AP curriculum more meaningful. But I also realize that there's a lot to cover in a very short amount of time. And that's something that I think I'm just going to have to struggle through this year and learn from and then make adjustments for the following year. Mm. But really, I I, I made the push. I'm not a big standardized testing person, but I made this push because in 2019, I believe, there was only like 15 to 20 Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander students in all of Hawaii who passed the computer science the AP computer science exam. Mm. I mean, that was so shocking to me, just 15. And I was thinking, wow, like, you know, standardized testing isn't everything, but also, you know, we know that AP exams provide access, you know, their college level courses provide access to a head start in college. And also a lot of, you know, college admissions officers view AP exams and AP scores as a measure of, you know, mastery, right? Right. And so I'm like, oh, okay, only 15 to 20 Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander students in all of Hawaii pass this. Like, what is this saying about the access that we're giving to our, our Native Hawaiian students to computer science? And so that's really why I'm pushing for that this year is like, I want my students to have access to an AP class and I want them to see and experience firsthand that they can do it. I totally believe that we can get, you know, 10 to 15 students at DreamHouse alone to pass this test. They're mm-hmm. totally capable. So yeah, whatever I can do to give them access, that's really my my focus and not not the standardized testing part. Yeah, I love that, Serena. And, and I love the idea that with with more and more access and more and more people of Native Hawaiian or whatever ancestry you choose to think about, the more that comes into play into the AP environment, the more the AP 
courses themselves are going to change and adapt and modify themselves and grow better over the years, right? I mean, we're really talking, it's almost like the idea, I, I did this podcast with Helen Turner, who's a VP for strategy and innovation at Chaminade University. And she's been working so hard over the years to get more Native Hawaiian, people of Native Hawaiian ancestry and also women into the sciences because she believes that the research that's conducted at the at the university level is inadequate when you don't have those people doing that sort of research. And I, I love that idea. And it seems like you're kind of taking that on too. It's like, we, we're going to be involved, but we're also going to be agents of change along the way. Yes, totally. I was deciding whether to offer AP Computer Science. There's two actually AP Computer Science courses, AP Computer Science A and then AP Computer Science Principles. And I chose the AP Computer Science Principles first because part of this exam requires students to create a portfolio of work where they have the freedom to demonstrate their computer science understanding through really any type of project they wish, which mm. is very similar to the way I teach and giving them computer science logic and then saying, run with it, like create something you're proud of. And I know that my students are going to come up with really brilliant things and, and be able to tell their story that maybe isn't really represented right now in AP computer science principles. So I'm excited to see the portfolios and projects they come up with and then um, and submit to the college board. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, one more question, this another 30,000-foot question before we go to our second break. So, Serena, one of my former guests, the author Chris Baum, who has written extensively about finding the magic in middle school, said the following in a blog, and I quote, If I could recommend one single change that would improve our schools dramatically, it would be this, build high-quality advisory programs for everyone, end quote. So what is your one single change, Serena, a change that would improve our schools dramatically if today we could wave our magic wands and just make it so? I think that's a pretty easy question for me because I've been thinking about it a lot. It's just learn in many different places and from many different people if I could wave my magic wand, school would not happen just in a school building. It would happen everywhere, engaging community, involving community. It would happen in the community. It would happen outside. It would happen inside. It would happen on college campuses. It would happen in libraries. It would happen at shopping malls. And that's kind of what Dreamhouse is doing right now. And so that's why I'm really proud to be part of this school. Mm. I think that school should happen everywhere. Mm. That's an awesome thought. Perfect thought to go into our second break, Serena. So, everyone, we will be right back with more questions for Serena Lividay. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation 
grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Serena Livaday, an epic computer science coach, mentor, sponsor, and advisor at Dreamhouse Academy in Eva Beach in Hawaii. So Serena, this next question is one I've actually been looking forward to asking you for a while. Given you just returned to Honolulu from Washington, D.C., and an event that you told me was called Strolling Thunder. So what was this event, and what is your advocacy around families with infants and toddlers whose parents are also educators? And what might you have been reflecting on or thinking about as you flew back with your son from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii? Yeah, Strolling Thunder is an advocacy event that takes place every year. However, this year was extremely special because it was the first year they were back in person since the pandemic. And they select a family representative from each of the 50 states and D.C. to fly to Washington, D.C. and meet with their representatives in Congress to really just share their stories. And we have a policy advisor that comes with us, and they're the ones who really push the policy ask. But Mm. my role was to share my story with my state representatives, you know, share with them how certain policies would have impacted me or or changed my story. And so, yeah, it's, it's about advocating for early childhood development needs. And so we know that really, really important development happens from the ages zero to three. And so we ask for policy change, any policy that has to do with zero to three child development. And so my focus is really on childcare. Mm. We struggled tremendously. Me and my partner struggled tremendously to find insecure, affordable and safe childcare for our son Ryder when he was born. Mm. And have you been, because I've had this conversation in the past with previous guests, have you been thinking about what your relationship is to your son in terms of you being a teacher and that he'll grow up with a teacher as a parent? Like, is that, has that been on your mind? Yeah, a lot. I think about it a lot. Well, first, I will say shout out to all teachers out there who are also parents because the same kind of emotional energy and love that you give to your students is the same energy and love that you have to save for your child, your mm. own children when you get home from work. It's a blessing and it's also really hard work. And I think about that all the time. I think about what are the different points of access that my son will have and also not have as a you know mixed race transplant who is not from Hawaii. And my work is just, it's, it ha- holds a different meaning now, right? Because I don't only see my students as students. I see them now as 
you know, daughters and sons and children of parents like myself. Mm. And that's just a type of understanding that, you know, I couldn't have had until I became a mom myself, just Mm. the deep care and love that you have for your child and also the investment you have in their future and their well-being. And so I do think that the way I treat my students now is a little bit different because I see them as children of parents like myself. And I always make sure now to thank parents for entrusting me with their kids mm. on a day to this, because that's another thing that I didn't realize until having my own kid is that it, it takes a lot of courage to leave your kid in a building with other adults besides yourself and, and trust that they will be okay. So I always make sure to thank our parents. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome thought. I've been thinking a lot about it lately, too, because my daughter is a teacher in the Bay Area, not far from where you grew up. And though I didn't really realize it, I think at the time, Serena, she hung out a lot with me in my classrooms at various places. And, you know, we joke about the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And her becoming a teacher was really one of the most beautiful moments in my life. She's the one who has expressed to me how much she was absorbing in that time that she she was spending with me in my classrooms or when I was preparing to teach and things like that. And so I love that work that you're doing. And I love the sentiment that you're expressing there, which is that we always need to think about the fact that our educators are parents as well, and that they carry a lot on their shoulders. So that's awesome. So Serena, one of the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to return to something you were talking about earlier, which is Purple Maya. One of the core concepts at What School Could Be is mobilizing your community. And there is this organization that you've talked about already in Hawaii called Purple Maya, which is a world-class institution that sets the standard for excellence in education, innovation, and entrepreneurship in service of both land and people. And you supported the founding of Purple Maya's Future Ancestors program, which was designed to empower students to explore their community in search of vai-vai, meaning in Hawaiian, value and richness. So these learning experiences really lay the foundation for future explorations into indigenous innovation and entrepreneurship that are that are built around Native Hawaiian values and perspectives. So what was your role in the designing and building of this future ancestors program and and what is a specific example i think you already kind of shared something already of something young people might do or did do to find the richness and value in their communities kumu mike sarmiento who works for purple maya is the one who founded the idea of future ancestors and Future Ancestors is grounded in the ideas of Ho'omao, Ho'omo'o, and Po'okela. And, you know, the, the broad translation to English is past, present, and future. Mm. And we're trying to get our student leaders to think outside of themselves and kind of think about that question that you actually left some of your guests with in a past episode. You know, what do you want your legacy to be in your community? Right. So it's something that our students who have tons of things going on in their middle school lives don't really think about until given the invitation. And so Future Ancestors creates space for them to think about that question and to better understand that question and explore that question for themselves. We connect them to various community members who are absolutely brilliant and really living out their ancestors' dreams and continuing the work of 
their ancestors in community every single day. And so within a span of like the first, my favorite thing about Future Ancestors is the first day of Future Ancestors, we meet outside of Dreamhouse and then we get the students on a bus and then we just go. Wow. And which is kind of rare for like a, a camp, right? Because usually we start with like relationship building mm. and like grounding and dreaming. But we really believe in like, we want to communicate to our students that again, going back to the idea of learning happens everywhere. Yes, we will relationship build and do all of those things, but let's just get on a bus and go and let's take you so, to some really awesome places in your community that you may, may not have seen and visited before. Mm. And so within the span of like four days, we take our students to four amazing places in the community to talk to Kumu that are dedicating their lives to very, very special places in our community that have a lot of rich history. And our students get to also take part in the work that these Kumu are doing. And then after visiting all these sites and, and having these experiences in their community and learning from these amazing people, we, we ask our students, okay, so, so what is your purpleness? Mm. You know, purple mm-hmm. Maya was named Purple Maya because purple is the rarest color in nature. And so we say that every student, every individual has purpleness. And so what is your purpleness? What is the gift that you have to offer your community Hmm. after seeing how all of these other Kumu are offering their purpleness to their communities? And so that's kind of the application to themselves. And and they get to reflect on the legacy that they want to leave in their community after being inspired by all of these amazing people. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to give a quick shout out at this moment to our listeners to a shout out to a book that I read last year called The Good Ancestor by Roman Krasnarek. And it it just changed my life. And now I'm seeing education through a completely different lens, Serena, that we are charged with educating not one, not two, not three, just multiple generations of kids to be good ancestors. And that we, we feel a sense of urgency about doing that. So that's fantastic. Serena, before we get to the end of our amazing conversation, I want to ask a quick and potentially silly question. While watching videos of you working in your classrooms, I noticed that you wear a headset complete with inline mic. And in effect, you are amplifying your voice on occasion. So why? Like, seems like a small thing, and maybe it is, but maybe there is a larger purpose behind it. Yeah. At Dreamhouse, we call it the Britney Spears mic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the only nerdy coach who has one of them. But Mm. I mean, the main reason we have Britney Spears mics at Dreamhouse is because our middle school campus is the way the building is configured. It's open concept. And so there are very minimal walls and doors. There are no walls and doors. There's just spaces next to spaces, next to spaces and hallways that connect them. Hmm. And so the idea behind this kind of layout was that energy and sound would just flow through the building. And it would feel like this symphony of learning when you step into the building which is beautiful. And also the problem with that is that 
sound and energy flows throughout the building and it's really <laughs> the person next to you sometimes. And so on a very practical level, that is the purpose behind the Britney Spears mic so that coaches do not have to lose their voice and become hoarse teaching all day and amplifying their voice in a very loud, boisterous building. Mm. But I think that it, it is funny that you bring this up because voice is the core competency that we really, really, you know, center at Dreamhouse. And we always encourage our kids to find their voice. And I think that I did notice that the coaches who are more likely to use the mic are the female teachers at our school. And mm. I think that says something about the extra accommodations that female coaches might need in order to be heard and to be taken seriously, right? Mm. I, I don't see many male coaches at our school using the mic mm. because it seems that when they speak, they're immediately, their words are taken seriously and kids are quiet mm. or quieter and listening. So I think on a deeper level, yeah, it's, a, it's an accommodation. It's an accommodation for us coaches who yeah. you know might not right away because of our identities so that's awesome that's awesome i knew there was something deeper than just you know amplification so serena i love to end conversations by asking guests to give a shout out to an individual or individuals giants if you will upon whose shoulders they stand in, in your case there are three giants in your life so Let's have you talk briefly about all three, and I'll ask you one after the other. So first, who is Ryan Mondado, and how is he one of those giants in your life? Ryan Mondado just transitioned actually from being the interim CEO of DreamHouse to now the permanent CEO of DreamHouse. So congratulations, Ryan. Mm -hmm. And he also just received his dissertation. So he's actually Dr. Ryan Mandato. Mm. So congratulations again to him. He has been a, a mentor of mine. And, you know, on paper, he's my supervisor, but he always tells me that he doesn't like to be called that because people do not need to be supervised. Mm. He is someone who really introduced to me the idea of agency and gave me frameworks and ideas for learning how to navigate my own agency. You know, mm. agency sounds really glamorous and beautiful and people strive to have agency in their lives. But then when given it or given an opportunity to be agentic, it actually becomes really difficult. Like mm. I hear a lot of times at school staff, especially when we're tired and burnt out, like I just want someone to tell me what to do, right? Mm. Which is like the opposite of agency. But I think that there's something to that. It, it speaks into how difficult agency is. And I think Ryan, Dr. Ryan Mandato has really led me in learning how to navigate my own agency, even mm. though it's hard. So that's mm. Ryan. That's awesome. So Serena, why a shout out to the strong female leadership team at DreamHouse upon whose shoulders you stand? Yeah, I want to specifically shout out our principles on paper. We don't use the language principles or administration at DreamHouse, but they are principles on paper. Darlene and Amber, Coach Darlene and Amber, and also all of the female coaches at DreamHouse are just powerful, powerful leaders. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wear many hats. They are community leaders. They are parents. They are teachers, they are administrators, they are systems thinkers, just brilliant people with very high capacities for 
love and leadership and change. And I think that it's really empowering to be in a space that is led by these powerful women. And I think that's really shaped my leadership journey and learning from these amazing women leaders, how to be a woman leader in the workplace and how to also balance the many hats that we women leaders wear. Mm, That's awesome. And so you've already mentioned him already, but finally, who is Mike Sarmiento and in what ways do you carry his energy and his vision with you each day? Kumu Mike Sarmiento is from Makaha and he works for Purple Maya. He is also, again, my supervisor on paper, but has just been a tremendous mentor to me. And I don't know if he knows this, but he's really changed my life in terms of the way I view my work and my identity and community. He is someone who believes deeply in the potential of people. And I think a lot of that comes from the philosophies of future ancestors that like the gifts that people have are not just from themselves. They've been gifted to them by a long line of people who came before them. And so he believes that every individual walks in great power that Mm -hmm. has been given to them by their ancestors. And I think he sees every individual like that. And he saw me like that. And that was just life-changing for me. And I'm so honored that Future Ancestors, this idea that has been in the works for years and years, that he trusted me to pilot the very first program at DreamHouse that has meant the world to me and Mm. is one of my favorite things about working for Purple Maya and working for DreamHouse. That's awesome. And so what we'll do is we'll dedicate this episode to Dr. Mandato and to the strong female leadership at Dreamhouse Academy in Eva Beach, and also to Mike Sarmiento. And we wish them the best. And we thank them for being future ancestors, right? Because that's what they are. Yes. And that's awesome. They're the ones that we carry with us each day. And I, I love that idea. So thank you. So Serena, thank you for being on the show today. We at What School Could Be wish you and your partner and your son, Ryder, an awesome rest of your summer 2023 and an absolutely epic upcoming school year. Wow. So much to look forward to. Thank you. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. 
Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.